This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Thanks for joining us for today's forum on Syria and the second wave of revolutions in the Middle East and North Africa. My name is Danny Postel. I'm in Chicago, and I'm honored to be moderating the discussion today. And finally, let me mention that today's panel is part of a series of webinars happening this summer on the theme of the Syrian revolution, a history from below. The videos can all be found at syrianrevolt.org. There are two more webinars in the series after today's. This coming Wednesday, July 29th, Jailed Revolutionaries, Resistance to Assad's Carceral State. And finally, on Wednesday, August 5th, Where Next for the Syrian Struggle? You can find the details about these webinars plus videos of all the past ones. There have been eight so far. And you can find those all at syrianrevolt.org and on the Facebook page of the Global Campaign of Solidarity with the Syrian Revolution. Now it's my pleasure to introduce my interlocutors for today's discussion. Sara Abbas is a Sudanese PhD candidate in political science at the Freie Universität Berlin. Her doctoral research focuses on the discourses and practices of women members of Sudan's Islamist movement and the former ruling party of deposed dictator Omar al-Bashir. Most recently, she has been researching the resistance committees that emerged out of Sudan's 2018 revolution. She is a member of Sudan Uprising Germany and the Alliance of Middle Eastern and North African Socialists. Gilbert Ashkar is Professor of Development Studies and International Relations at SOAS, University of London. His many books include Morbid Symptoms, Relapse in the Arab Uprising, The People Want, a Radical Exploration of the Arab Uprising, Marxism, Orientalism, Cosmopolitanism, The Arabs and the Holocaust, the Arab-Israeli War of Narratives, Perilous Power, the Middle East and U.S. Foreign Policy with Noam Chomsky, and The Clash of Barbarisms, the Making of the New World Disorder. Joseph Daher is a Swiss-Syrian activist and academic. He's the author of Syria After the Uprisings, The Political Economy of State Resilience, and Hezbollah, The Political Economy of Lebanon's Party of God. He is a member of the Alliance of Middle Eastern and North African Socialists and the founder of the blog Syria Freedom Forever. He teaches at the University of Lausanne and is part of the Wartime and Post-Conflict in Syria project at the European University Institute in Florence. So welcome uh, to all three of you. Uh, it's very exciting to be in dialogue with you today. Let me start with something, uh, Gilbert, that you wrote recently in an essay. 
you described what you called the second revolutionary shockwave that started in December 2018 with the Sudanese uprising, followed since February 2019 by the Algerian uprising, and since last October by massive social and political protests in Iraq and in Lebanon. Sudan, Algeria, Iraq, and Lebanon, you write, have been boiling since then, while all other countries of the region are on the brink of explosion. All other countries of the region are on the brink of explosion. This picture that you paint, Gilbert, flies directly in the face of the, the narrative so pervasive in Western capitals amongst so-called realists, uh, policymakers, pundits, and, and the media class, and even in certain quarters of the left. The narrative that the Arab Spring was a complete failure, or at best an illusion, a fever dream, from which the world soon awoke. Order has been restored, the dictators and monarchs are back in charge, and the world can keep on doing business with them. Talk about how that narrative uh, emerged and why, if, why it's wrong in your view. Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Danny. Hello to everybody. And uh, yeah, I also thank the, the organizers. <clears throat> and I thank you, Danny, for moderating this, uh, this, uh, this session. Um, well, with regard to the, 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 the issue that you just uh, raised, um, uh, I think the, 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 it's pretty clear to any observer of the region that uh, since uh, what was called the Arab Spring in 2011, uh, this region has been very profoundly destabilized. And it has been since then uh, in a state of tension, uh, including, of course, as we know, uh, uh, three countries in the midst of, uh, of war, of conflict, armed conflict, which are Syria, our main topic uh, or the main topic of the series of, uh, of, of, of discussions of, uh, of webinars, uh, uh, Yemen, of course, and, and, and Libya. But all other countries have seen uh, a lot of uh, social uh, protests, some of them, uh, uh, economic difficulties, social economic difficulties, uh, putting a strain on the, 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 the kind of situation you have and, uh, and the repressive measures of, of governments to try, I mean, in some of the cases, to try to prevent uh, social explosion. So all this is related to the, the I mean, the, the key issue, which is why did you have what was called the Arab Spring? You know, was it just some kind of uh, seasonal explosion with no uh, no future? Um, and uh, and there you have, of course, many people who may have portrayed it uh, as such or as a failure, as you said. Uh, the question is, I mean, or the issue, the, the key point is that uh, a failure, the failure of a revolution or a first phase in a revolutionary process doesn't mean uh, that the issues that led to this explosion, the social explosion, have been solved. Far from it, actually. 
Uh, often that means that uh, not only these issues are still there, but uh, they have been, they are, uh, uh, they are worsening. They are worse than what they were before, if only because of the conditions created by the uh, social explosion itself. And so that's the point. The point is to understand why you had this uh, major uh, uh, shockwave, revolutionary shockwave that engulfed the whole region. Practically all Arabic speaking uh, countries have seen uh, uh, in 2011 a sharp rise in, uh, in, in, in social movement, social protest, and six of them at that time have seen major uprisings. If you think of that, six countries in 2011 and four countries in 2019 going through major uprisings, that's already a total of 10 countries, which is not far from the half, half the number of countries of the region, I mean, Arabic-speaking countries. Uh, and if you take by population, it's even more than half. Uh, because of Egypt uh, being one, one of them. So that shows you the magnitude of what we are going through. And this magnitude points, therefore, to very deep problems, the very deep roots. And these deep roots are uh, essentially uh, social and economic before being political. They are also political, definitely. And there are many forms of uh, also social oppression that I won't uh, mention because uh, practically you name it, you get it in the region. All forms of social oppression or all forms of uh, gender oppression and the rest are very much pr uh, present. But the, 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 the deep root of the explosion itself has, has been the accumulation of a social economic problem over uh, a few decades and that was manifested by the, uh, uh, I mean, uh, very slow rate of, uh, of economic growth, hardly matching the uh, demographic uh, uh, changes in the region, and uh, translating into uh, major social problems, the most obvious of which was, and still is, and more than ever, uh, youth unemployment. Uh, we are speaking of a part of the world with the highest rates of youth unemployment in, in the whole world. I mean, as a region, this is the region, least, uh, Middle East and North Africa is the region where you had the highest rates of youth unemployment and that for many, many years now. So all this points to the, the, the real problems that have been uh, exploding. And uh, that's why, I mean, what started in 2011 um, uh, can only be characterize as a process, as a long-term revolutionary process. That's the only accurate description of what it is. And as all long-term revolutionary processes in history, uh, of course, they go through different phases and uh, you have uh, uh, successive revolutionary waves or successive, successive revolutionary attempts. Uh, of course, it's not easy to, 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 especially with the kind of regimes that you have to, to, to achieve any, any victories. Uh, until then, you have two countries that have, that have achieved some kind of victories that are still preserved. Uh, that is, in the two countries, the, the, the process is in different forms ongoing, which are Tunisia and Sudan. Uh, but uh, as a whole, the whole region is permanently now on the brink of new explosions. And I would turn, I mean, end this uh, my answer to by pointing also to the effect now of the major 
major economic crisis that the world is going through with the COVID-19 and its impact on the region, which will be uh, even more devastating than other parts of the world. Yeah, as you pointed out, um, the pandemic has uh, meant the end of some of the mass protests that we saw, for example, in Algeria, but it has uh, only exacerbated the conditions that gave rise to those protests uh, to begin with. So uh, let me turn to uh, Sara, um, because as Gilbert notes, uh, the uh, this second revolutionary shockwave um, uh, of Arab uprisings started in December 2018 in Sudan. And... Uh, so before we get into the tricky issue uh, of where the Sudanese popular struggle goes from here at this juncture, I'd like to back up a little bit, Sada, and ask you, what has Sudan's December revolution, as the uprising is known, what has it achieved already? Uh, you, in a recent article, described <coughs> it as a mass nonviolent uprising that began in December 2018, and despite massive brutality by the state, managed in April of 2019, just a few months later, to bring down the 30-year dictatorship of Omar al-Bashir. Um, and you say that this revolution, the Sudanese December revolution, was both political and social. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that, Sara? Yeah, no problem. Um, thanks a lot for having me. Um, in Sudan, I think it's important to, to make the distinction early in the sense that we, maybe when we, we're speaking about where the struggle is at, we look both at the first wave of uprisings um, in 2010, 2011, 2012, within the Arab, uh, with the so-called Arab Spring, but we also look at our own history very much. It's a reference point for us because, of course, the December 2018 revolution in Sudan was this third mass uprising in our post-colonial history. So the first was in 1964, the second was in 1985. And in each of those cases, we have a dynamic whereby uh, multi-party elected coalitions are over are over are overthrown by military coups, which are then, after a period of time, then deposed by popular uprisings that are very much organized by and led by labor unions and by uh, a lot of uh, mass uh, mobilization on the ground. So this was always very important for us because when we we were very much, particularly Egypt has a very, um, our histories are very intertwined. You know, it's our neighbor. It's also the sort of hegemonically the big country in the region. There's also a colonial history there. It wasn't just British colonialism, but somehow Egypt was in that mix. And of course, um, we watched incredibly closely what was happening in Egypt um, during the, their uprising in 2011. But, uh, you know, when SCAF took over, that was something we have experienced. We understand this kind of history and, and, and tend to know uh, generally how it ends when the military is in politics, right? But um, just, to, just to kind of go back to your question about the social and the economic aspect of it, one part of it is exactly what Gilbert was talking about. I think sometimes, particularly in Western media, in the attempt to 
talk about the sort of political aspects of this, the authoritarianism, the, the lack of freedom that people have revolted on, there is an, uh, a kind of tendency to downplay the economic struggles, which I think also in Sudan are very much uh, at the heart of many of these things. I mean, as, uh, myself as an academic, it's, we make these distinctions, but these are very much intersecting things. So to give an example from Sudan, um, definitely youth unemployment is a massive problem because, and particularly, you know, we're a country where 61% of the population is under the age of 25. I mean, imagine that 61% of the population is younger than 25 years old. So this is a massive issue, but there are other issues uh, which have to do with the the systematic dispossession, this is a kind of colonial dynamic that was very much continued and extended by post-colonial regimes, whether military or civilian, the, the very short periods of civilian uh, government, where, you know, there's a lot of resource extraction from areas of the country that are propping up um, uh, an elite at the center, an Arab-identified elite at the center of the of the country, and that creates classes of citizenship. And these have very particular, strong racial uh, constructions, but also economic implications, right? So if you come from Darfur, uh, a lot of our post-colonial economies uh, relied on these cash crops that the British had cultivated, where we, you know, whether it's sesame seeds or gum arabic from Western Sudan, whether it's cotton from the agricultural areas. And so a lot was being taken and extracted out of these regions and, 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 and nothing given back to them. So there is also that dynamic and that has continued and been extended also through the different wars. But I also say it's a social revolution. In my case, I'm very interested in gender. And, uh, and in women's movements historically in Sudan, or women's activism, let's put it, because the, the question of movement is more complicated. And um, th we saw definitely some aspects of these protests that were, were familiar. For example, the role of, of, of labor unions and professional associations, and others that were very different. So while women have always been part of these previous uprisings, the extent to which they were there, the type of practices, for example, during the sittings of being at night, sleeping over the site of the sittings, many of these were new to us. And so there are, there's also been social changes that have been incredibly important. And I mean, I could really uh, go on and give many examples of this. So I think it's, 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 What's very important is to think about, definitely, I would say, in terms of gains, and we can talk about this later, there have been some political and legal reform that has definitely happened since last year. I think the economic issues have been harder to shift, and the will and desire to shift them have been more limited, at least on the part of those in power. So this is something that's very important to talk about, because I was also in Tunisia in the years following 2011, and what our measure is of success, I mean, already Gilbert has pointed to this, it's very important to look at actually where these economic struggles are also as a, as a measure of success. Thanks for that, Sarah. You know, and just to follow up on where things are today in Sudan, uh, it's been a year, almost exactly a year now, since the August 2019 constitutional declaration, right? The negotiated deal that ushered in a transitional period of power sharing between the civilian opposition and the military. 
This was a hotly debated uh, 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 deal um, on uh, amongst uh, rebel Sudanese revolutionaries. Um, it's it's been a, a year now, and where do things stand? Uh, as we approach the one-year anniversary, I, I was struck by something that you wrote in your latest uh, article, um, where you talked about an open sit-in in the town of Nertiti in central Darfur, an area, as you point out, an area that has long been targeted by state violence, racism, neglect, dispossession, and war. You note that this sit-in um, in the town of Nertiti uh, in Darfur really raises some of the core, kind of symbolizes some of the core demands and challenges that afflict this uh, uh, negotiated uh, uh, transition, this constitutional declaration one year on. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, I mean, we're at a period it's a, of another massive wave of sittings that have popped up. Um, of course, the sitting was a, a protest tactic that, that was part of the Sudanese revolution. There was uh, several uh, sittings in 13 cities last year between April and June. Um, and they've been, they were very important moments in the revolution or on the revolutionary path. Um, there have been, I think it challenges, first of all, the narrative of, you know, this is when the revolution starts, this is when it ends, then we move into this neat period of transition where we work towards having a constitution and elections, right? There is these roadmaps. It challenges them because, as we know, um, even in the cases where there are limited gains, I would say, from this, there are gains for sure from this uh, mass uprising in Sudan. They're, they are limited to the extent that of course, the, the power structure is only partially shifted. I mean, we are still in a power sharing deal with the military and also the militias. I think we often put the, in, in Sudan's case, the militias are also a, an actor that's uh, the militia of the rapid support forces. It's an actor that is linked to the military, but also independent in other ways an independent variable in other ways. But I think what's important is this wave of sittings, there's at least two or three things that are very notable about it. Where these sittings are taking place, they are taking place in what you would say in Arabic, Manatak al-Hamish. This is a, there's a language we use in Sudan where we talk about the peripheral regions. Um, of course, the point of reference being Khartoum or the center around the, the, the sort of confluence of the Nile. And so there is a language about the peripheries, but also these are regions for the most part like that have had um, just the most brutal, uh, brutal experience of both war and of, uh, of, of capitalism, of dispossession, of extraction. And so uh, Sudanese feminist uh, Hikma Ahmed uh, Yagoub, she put it uh, this way. She said, we are witnessing, if that was the revolution of the stable, of the stable cities, this is the revolution of the burnt cities. These are people for whom security just their physical security. And it's something that a lot of Syrians, I think, can relate to um, in Syria, that, that before we can talk about many other things, they have to be safe. I mean, they have not been safe, at least in, an, in a region like that for since 2003, when the genocide was, was at its height. And so you they are asking because they are unable, these are, this is um, a sitting in inertity in this town, which has 
have inspired other siblings. They are asking, I mean, if you just look at the list of demands, it kind of answers this question of sort of the economic and the political and the social. They're asking, for example, um, for the militias to be disarmed. They're asking for their marginalization to end. They are asking for safety to be able to farm and to be able to herd. It's a, it's a, a, the regions around it are rural. They are asking for the mining operations in the area to be brought under the control of the government. And so they are asking for safety, but they are also asking for an end to the continuation of their second class citizenship, right? And so they, they are not putting it in, these are political demands and these are social demands. But it highlights this issue of, yes, we've made a lot of gains, but vast areas of the country continue to not see changes. And this is, they are rising up against that. And this is incredibly important. Have there been, has there been progress? Have there been things, of course. Um, and as, 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 as uh, Muslim and Neil, um, an activist within the revolution, a young activist has put it, there have been gains despite the deal with the military, despite this controversial deal. One of them being that, you know, we've dismantled the public order laws, which were a way of the, the regime controlled people. We have... There, is, there are serious attempts to try to dismantle the apparatus of the regime in terms of its definitely political networks. It had a policy called empowerment, of sort of controlling state and private institutions, but also its economic networks, which are much more difficult to dislodge than, than the political networks. So there have been changes, but it continues. I mean, I don't think um, it's not this kind of smooth path that you see. There's a lot of contestation still, and there's continued protests on the ground, of course, in the context of COVID, which makes it very complicated. Uh, Gilbert, as someone who has written uh, recently about Sudan yourself, do you want to add anything to uh, Sarah's observations? No, I mean, uh, I agree with Sarah's uh, depiction of, of what's going on, but uh, the key point is that um, uh, we have to, to Keep in mind that uh, this is, uh, uh, with all the limitations that Sarah pointed to, it is the most advanced process that we have seen in the region until now, because of the forms of organization, because of the 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 the, the, the power of mobilization of the mass movement, because of the forms of the or of the of organization of of the youth. The, the Sudanese youth is, is remarkably uh, active in this in this whole process. Uh, uh, this is a, a process that is still going on. That is, I mentioned that you have two countries where achievements are still there, which are Tunisia and uh, and Sudan. These are the two countries where, if you ask people, uh, uh, is it? I mean, was it better before the uprising? People will say definitely not. Whereas for all other countries, take Egypt for today, everybody says Mubarak was great, I mean, compared to the, the, what they have today. So the two countries where people are, are still believing that they, they, they achieve something are Tunisia and Sudan, but with a major difference, which is Tunisia has stopped, the, the, the process is blocked at the level of political reforms and, and achieving democracy, freedom, and things like that, which are real achievements, no doubt about that. But 
uh, that's all. I mean, the, the the whole process is blocked. The the key working class force in the country, which is the 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 the, the major uh, union, the, 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 the only the central uh, uh, union federation in the country, has been uh, very much engaged into a kind of what you could call a collaborationist. Uh, uh, a position of uh, of uh, of uh, in some way uh, ending the the social process and and uh, uh, um, uh, allowing for the kind of uh, of quite rotten political compromise that you have. The, 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 I mean, they achieve democracy, but the, the kind of democracy they have is not exactly very inspiring. I would say it, it resembles those rotten democracies that we have in a country like Lebanon, for instance, or other places. Uh, so in Sudan, the, the, the issue is different because the, the process is still there, even in its uh, deep social economic uh, character. That is, the pressure is still there and an organized pressure. And of course, the compromise this, um, that was uh, achieved between the, the, the military and uh, the, uh, let's say, the popular movement, put it that way, uh, uh, is something that can't last. That is, it's a kind of transitional period. You have the fact to two countervailing powers in Sudan. One are the military, and the other is the popular movement in some way, which is was exerting pressure. And caught between the two, you have this government with uh, uh, the prime minister, Hamdouk, uh, at the head. Uh, and this can't last forever. I mean, uh, eventually, one of the two will have to to get rid of the other, and, uh, and that's that's the, the 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 key point. But crucially, the the mass movement is organized. The 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 the, the youth is organized. The the unions, the the, the kind of professional uh, association framework is still there. There are attempts by the military, by the security forces to dismantle all that by various tricks, but the, the, the impetus is still here. And we have seen recently, uh, uh, Sarah pointed to uh, the periphery, but even centrally, there have been also big mobilizations very recently, you know, uh, uh, and, uh, and uh, the, the pressure is there, the demand of the people, the movement that uh, to go forward, to go beyond, and even to implement part of the things that were agreed with the military, which have not yet been implemented. Well, this leads to my next question, which is this second wave of uh, uprisings across the region. Um, you've suggested, Gilbert, and Sara kind of pointed to this in an earlier comment, that there is a sense in which this second wave is not just a repeat or an extension of the first wave of uprisings beginning in December 2010 and into 2011, but rather that it has the advantage several years later that it can learn and has learned, right, from the errors, not only the achievements, but the errors that many of those, uh, the first wave of uprisings encountered. So for example, you say, Gilbert, you write that in Egypt, there were huge illusions about the military among the population of Egypt, culminating in the 2013 coup that brought General Sisi or Field Marshal Sisi to power. But you write, these illusions were not reiterated in Sudan or Algeria in 2019. On the contrary, the popular movements in these two countries have been acutely aware 
that the military constitute the central pillar of the regime that they wish to get rid of. It was clear, you write elsewhere, it was clear that the changes at the highest levels of the Egyptian state after 2011 had not altered the foundations of the regime, so that the dictatorship returned with a vengeance three years later. This made the popular movements in Algeria and Sudan wary. They continued to protest vigorously after their presidents were ousted, demanding a civilian government with full executive powers. So my question for both you and Sada and Joe is, was this actually a case of revolutionary learning or what some scholars call social movement learning in which Sudanese and Algerian activists saw what happened in Egypt and consciously steered clear of the pitfalls in those two cases? Or rather, was this to do more with the peculiarity of Egypt, the much discussed reverence in Egypt for the institution of the military that goes deep in Egyptian pop, the Egyptian popular imagination, culture, even consciousness. Um, how would you respond to that, Gilbert? Uh, well, there is definitely a learning curve in, uh, in uh, social movements, in revolutionary processes. It is a learning curve, and people can see uh, of course, there are different political conditions. The, the one major political condition, which is anyhow um, also a qualitative difference between the first wave of 2011 and the second wave of 2019, is that uh, the uh, in the first wave, almost in all theaters, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood or any equivalent of the Muslim Brotherhood were very much involved in trying to hijack the uprisings uh, and revolutionary processes. And they played a key role also in fostering those illusions about the military in Egypt, you know, in the first period. And uh, and in the second period, it was unfortunately uh, some forces, be, I mean, described as left wing or progressive and the liberals who 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 fostered the illusions with about the military in ousting the the, the Muslim Brotherhood. So. The result of all that being a much uglier dictatorship today in Egypt than what you had before 2011 is there to be seen by everybody, and it has been seen. And so if you compare the, the reaction in 2011, 11th February 2011, uh, and the, 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 the illusions about the army as, you know, being the savior that you had in Cairo and that were pushed by some political forces, as I said, uh, th those were not repeated in either Algiers, where the president was uh, removed uh, basically by the military. It was a resignation, but uh, everybody understood. And and then in uh, in, in Khartoum, in in Sudan, in both in Al Algeria and in Sudan, uh, people didn't get you know these great illusions about the great saviors of the army, and and they kept pushing, and, uh, and, and they kept regarding the military as the obstacle, as the regime, the, 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 the backbone of the regime that we are struggling against. This is, these, uh, these guys are this backbone, and this is what we, we want to get rid of. And, and so, yes, in that, uh, from, from that angle, yes, this is a very, very important uh, lesson 
drawn by this. Uh, and uh, this is also related to the fact that the three countries have this in common, that they are the three, the only three countries among the Arabic-speaking countries where the military, the army, is the main political institution. You know, it, it is, it is uh, there is a real uh, autonomy of the institution which does not belong to any ruling family like is the case in the monarchies or in Syria, for, for, uh, for instance. And there, that's why you could see in the three countries the army toppling the president. Yes, uh, because the, the army believed that, I mean, uh, to, to preserve its uh, its own privileges and its own uh, uh, rule, it, it, it had to do so. But it worked in Egypt uh, twice, in 2011 and 2013, with the consequences that we just described. It didn't work in uh, in Algeria or Sudan. Uh, it didn't work at all. And in both countries, the the... the the, the, I mean, in, in Sudan and uh, Algeria, it has been frozen due to COVID-19, but there is absolutely no doubt of uh, the, the fact that uh, it is simmering and the, 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 the movement will resume any time uh, uh, it, it can when, and when the, the, you know, the preventions for uh, medical reasons or whatever will, uh, will uh, diminish. I'd like to uh, shift slightly to the question of leadership because both – actually all three of you in different ways have written about the question of leadership. I just want to again quote something that Gilbert wrote and then ask Sara and Joe um, what they think. Gilbert wrote that the popular movement in Algeria is remarkable for having staged huge mass demonstrations every week for over a year. Its stamina – is truly exceptional, but has no recognized or legitimate leadership. Nobody can claim to speak in its name, and this is an obvious weakness. In stark contrast with Sudan, forms of leadership naturally change over time, but we haven't entered some postmodern age, Gilbert writes, of leaderless revolutions, as some want to believe. The lack of leadership is a real and far-reaching impediment. A recognized leadership is crucial in order to channel the strength of the mass movement towards a political goal. This exists in Sudan with all its contradictions, but not in Algeria, not in Iraq, not in Lebanon. So, Joe, um, to bring you into the dialogue, and, uh, and, and we will do more of that soon when we shift to Syria, I would like to hear from both you and Sada on this question of leadership. Thank you, Danny. First of all, I would like to, to thank you for moderating all the organizers, and it's a pleasure to speaking alongside Gilbert and Sarah. Um, no, definitely, I agree, and I, I written uh, something uh, going into the same direction that the, the lack of leadership. And obviously, when we understand, when we speak about a leadership, it shouldn't be into an elitist way. Uh, that we, what we mean is about the possibility of mass organizing from below and giving uh, a particular political orientation uh, with, uh, obviously, uh, when you have a strong uh, feminist movement or women activist movement and a strong trade union movement, it gives you a particular uh, stamina uh, to go forward in particular demands that are as well democratic and socioeconomic, which I think uh, is very important uh, on many aspects. And definitely also what, what we spoke uh, from before <laughs> is that uh, the why Sudan and Tunis are, if you want, in a better or less worse situation uh, 
than the rest of the, the, the countries of the Middle East and North Africa that have witnessed um, uprisings uh, on a large scale is this they had uh, from below mass organizations that could um, organize, whether trade unions or, or feminists in, in both cases. So I think it's a, it's a key issue uh, today. And actually, if you see that it's, some, it's a question that goes uh, further than only the Middle East and North Africa, the question of a political orientation, a leadership uh, that um, uh, to some extent to have a protest movement is not uh, enough. We have to give a political orientation. Uh, a political leadership has to, to structure this movement and structure the demands to create a, a form, if you want, a form of dual power to challenge uh, the centers of power. And this, again, is not a, a debate limited to the Middle East and North Africa. It's something that we are witnessing, I think, throughout the world. Uh, thanks for that, Joe. Uh, Sara, would you like to add, I mean, specifically in the case of Sudan, one of the most notable things has been the leadership of many different um, bodies. Uh, and you've written uh, very persuasively about the uh, various uh, women's activists and women's groups in Sudan. But you also have, of course, very prominently the uh, Sudanese professional, uh, Sudanese professionals association, and the role it has played um, in uh, in in leading the Sudanese revolution. Can you talk about, from a Sudanese perspective, this question of leadership vis-a-vis -vis the other struggles in the region? Yeah, I think this has been, um, particularly in the first six months of the uprising, um, it gets a little bit more complicated from around June onwards, June 2019 onwards, when I'll speak about that. But this has been one of the strengths of the, of, the, of the uprising in Sudan. Um, we've had protests at several points in the last 30 years. We've certainly had since 2011, particularly since the independence of South Sudan or the secession of South Sudan, we saw protests or street protests very regularly. Some of the some of those waves of protests were quite big, like in 2013, also in 2012, very much related to issues of at that time austerity and the economic situation. But the difference between then and what happened in 2018 is that that there was a, a body or bodies that were able to really give those protests uh, direction, able to uh, organize, as you said, demands. I think it's a very dynamic process, so I'll give you an example. I mean, the SPA or the Sudanese Professionals Association, which is a uh, a coalition of different uh, 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 trade unions and associations uh, from the doctors who have been quite militant actually in Sudan. They were striking quite regularly in the years leading up to the revolution to the teachers committee as well. I mean, these were all banned, right? Banned organizations under the regime. The main thing that the SPA had been working on in the years right prior to the uprising was the issue of the minimum wage or the issue of raising the minimum wage. But these kinds of uh, links that they were able to do between the different trade associations that positioned them in such a way that in December, when the protests were happening and spreading, they declared that they were also for the fall of the regime and joined and that and then started the process of organizing with the political parties. I mean, what was interesting is for months, I remember at the beginning, 
particularly the first month when the SBA from December 25 became visible by leading the big, the first big protest, December 25, 2018, in Khartoum. Many of us, we didn't know who these people were, other than two or three of them who were the spokespersons who had been arrested, you know, and jailed uh, very quickly. People were, were following an organization the individuals themselves were not known and were protected, in fact, by the masses because the regime very much wanted to get a hold of them. And that showed both two things. First of all, the effectiveness of the of their position and the way they were organizing. But also, of course, people trusted them more than the political parties, political parties, including opposition parties. There's a I think not just in Sudan, but across the region, especially youth are quite wary of organized political parties. I mean, in Sudan, we see Sadiq al-Mahdi from the Ummah party, some of the faces that have been there since my parents were children, like leading the same parties. So for many people younger than myself, uh, the, the, the SPA gave them something that they could believe in. And also that there was a brilliant move in January to come up with the freedom um the Declaration of Freedom and Change, which is this uh, program with points of these are the demands. Of course, it's building on the struggles over the years, but it was also a way of mobilizing the political parties, some of the armed movement, the civic groups, which also signed this declaration, and then gave more coherence to the protests, more demands. And this is something that made, made a huge difference from our past, not just from Egypt, but in the past, we made the regime fall, usually because the military took down their own leader and replaced him. This happened in 1964. Then there was a transition to elections again in 1985. But four or five years later, we ended up in exactly the same place with a military coup. And so what was really fascinating in Sudan is in April when al-Bashir was removed and his top lieutenants were removed, That's the, the slogan came out, the revolution has just begun. Mm. For me, this was different. I was a child in the Intifada. This was different. We had lost and we wanted a change in the governance structure, not just in the in the regime. And so this organizing, particularly with the resistance committees, I think the SPA gets a lot of attention, but the kind of bedrock of the resistance in Sudan are these neighborhood small committees, mainly composed of youth that are uh, the ones that when the regime shut down the internet in June and dispersed the city, we, the SPA had been so reliant on Facebook to mobilize. The resistance committees were able to step in and organize people locally and on June 30th to turn out massive amounts of people. And so I would say it's not either leaderless in the case of Sudan or completely one leader, but it's the ability to organize, connect, and shift leadership as needed to meet that phase of the struggle that is, is most interesting in that case. I think that's a really important point, that it's not a, a pure binary. It's not like having leadership the way the Sudanese uh, struggle has in the form of the Sudanese Professionals Association. That doesn't exclude or preclude um, a more horizontal, grassroots, bottom-up structure, like in the form of these resistance committees. You actually have both. And what is the connection between them? How do, how do the resistance committees relate or interface with uh, the more um, traditional, not traditional leadership, but the more um, high visibility kind of, uh, uh, I don't want to say top down, but the Sudanese Professionals Association. Um, 
there, for example, during the sit-in last year, there were field committees of the Forces for Freedom of Change, of which the SPA is the biggest, um, one of, well, the, the most prominent, but also other political parties. So the Forces for Freedom and Change had field committees that that worked with the resistance committees to 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 organize protests, to prepare people for protests, to mobilize, to deal with the medical uh, issues because we had a lot of violence. And so, you know, the doctors would, you know, the shifts in terms of who's taking care of things. Since the revolution, if anything, I mean, since the deal, if anything, there's been a proliferation of both resistance committees, but different civic bodies, whether it's women's groups or what we call like like the demand-based organizations. For example, in the areas where mining is wrecking havoc in people's lives, they are very much working uh, closely with the resistance committees, which are then a pressure force for these areas at the level of the FFC, the civilian component, there are times where they come out against the FFC. So it's a, it's, they're not a kind of extension branches of the forces to freedom of change. If anything, that's where the movement is in the sense that they're very focused, for example, on the issue of justice, of transitional justice, and they've managed, it's not always convenient for the government for this issue to be uh, front and center, but they haven't let that issue disappear. So they go out in protest, to, to make demands on the government, but they also coordinate with the government. For example, with COVID, they're the ones that are doing a lot of the work on the ground in the absence of a health structure, really, that can deal with this crisis. So it's a very um, dynamic relationship that they have, but they cannot really, the FFC cannot really do anything uh, if they try to without the resistance committees being on board, without the neighborhood committees being on board, without a lot of the civic um, bodies being on board. The labor union, as the union movement has also, the labor field has also been growing and expanding in this process of trying to rebuild the 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 the, the labor movements in Sudan. And so it's it's a very, I think it's a very dynamic process. But I think without this horizontal uh, grassroots structures, I think you know the FFC is dominated by what we know traditionally the elites in a way the professional elites but this is the pro- these are the um, these are the bodies that keep them accountable i would say to the revolutionary demands i think that's really fascinating and inspiring frankly um so i want to turn to syria now um <clears throat> and i want i would like to get your thoughts uh, uh joe and and gilbert i mean it seems to me correct me if if you have a different reading but it seems to me that we're in a somewhat paradox situation in the sense that Assad has declared victory, um, even regional states that were allied with the Syrian opposition, like Turkey, have moved on to other battles, uh, for example, against uh, the Kurds, the PYD. Um, so the Syrian conflict is effectively over, militarily speaking, and yet we still see protests in different parts of the country. In Sueda, for example, which for those who don't know is a predominantly Druze province, supposedly religious and ethnic minorities like the Druze are supposed to be big supporters of the Assad regime. But here in uh, the Druze stronghold of Sueda, there have been protests in the last few weeks with slogans. People are chanting slogans like Syria belongs to us, not to the Assad family. And long live Syria down with Bashar al-Assad. So there have also been protests in Dara, where the Syrian uprising began in March 2011, and rural areas around Damascus. Uh, It almost feels reminiscent 
uh, of that first phase of the Syrian struggle before its militarization. Similar slogan, we're hearing similar slogans and we're seeing very similar conditions. So here's my question, is Syria in a sense back to square one or is it somewhere else? Joe, rather than merely celebrating the eruption of these protests as many people do, you recently wrote something sobering. You wrote, these conditions do not automatically translate into political opportunities, particularly after more than nine years of a destructive and murderous war. The absence of a structured, independent, democratic, and inclusive Syrian political opposition, which could appeal to the poorer classes, has made it difficult for various sectors of the population to unite and challenge the regime anew and on a national scale. Can you elaborate on that, Joe? Yeah, of course. Uh, no, what uh, what is the thing is definitely after more than nine years of war, the Syrian regime is nearly in control of 70% of the territory. Uh, nearly 13 million um, uh, Syrians around uh, to 20 million in the whole of Syria. You have uh, one sector that is outside of the country of the Assad regime, which is in the hand of the Syrian Democratic Forces, uh, and others parts are with uh, Turkey, uh, Turkish Allied Forces, and Tahrir uh, Sham, so a jihadist uh, coalition. Uh, maybe I should remind people that the socioeconomic situation is absolutely catastrophic in Syria. Before the COVID uh, level of poverty were above already 85%. Uh, now it's most probably uh, over. Uh, the Syrian pound has been losing continuously since October, but since the beginning of the, the uprising, its value, so high inflation. Uh, and as Syria has become a very important uh, importer of, uh, of uh, products from outside, you can imagine that the, the, the prices have exploded. So even though the regime has been able to reach a form of, um, has been able to survive, and, and we should remind everyone this was mostly because, and primarily, sorry, primarily and mostly because of the foreign assistance given by Iran, Russia, and other uh, particle actors such as Hezbollah and other uh, militias from Iraq. Um, and that the Syrian regime has been trying to impose a form of hegemony in the in the areas that came back into its uh, control. For example, uh, some areas of Damascus province, you've spoken about uh, that, I will come back to it, and other areas, Aleppo, uh, etc. This is, however, facing a lot of problems because the regime is lacking its means to reimpose this part of the use of various networks, a total form of hegemony, this, which creates a continuous instability. And actually, rising criticism has not been, uh, you know, limited to opposition people, but have been increasing among what we call, I, I don't think it's the right term, but we can use it today, uh, loyalist communities, uh, especially in, in the coast, but Damascus, Aleppo, etc. Uh, for example, we've seen even, you know, uh, forms of labor dissent in Tartus port that has now come under the management of the Russian company Strongas. Under the, and we can come back maybe later to this, but Syria has deepened its neoliberal policies throughout the world, throughout the world. And it's not the only case that a state uses a crisis to deepen its neoliberal policies. So, and now that the workers have lesser contract and they have been different forms of labor dissent in, in this 
uh, tattoo sport of more than 3,300, uh, 3,600 workers. And also in another company also controlled that was privatized at the profit of um, the same Russian company, General Federizer Company, company in Reef Homs in uh, province of Homs. So you can see that there's also this sense, and this is important to say, that even the people living under the regime's authority are not you know, complete loyalists following the regime and it is, it is often portrayed. When it comes to Sweda and Dara, I would a bit nuance what you said, Danny, about Sweda, because Sweda has witnessed demonstrations nearly since the first day of the uprising. Actually, Sweda was one of the first cities to come in solidarity with Dara having, you know, placards and solidarity with Dera uh, and elsewhere. And in Sweda, which is very interesting, stayed officially under the authority of the regime throughout the uprising or the war. But you had a situation where the central power was completely challenged by a, a, a form of third force that was around a, a big sort of militia called Rijal al-Karame, which is a man's of dignity, challenging the center of power, challenging the security services, meaning, for example, uh, with the support of long, uh, wide structure of the society and even some religious uh, dignitaries that were generally close to the regime, forbidding, for, for example, the youth to be sent outside of the governorate to send in the Syrian army. So you had in Sweda governorate more than 30,000 young men still in the governorate refusing to serve in the army. And you had a couple of demonstrations coming out, also very punctual, uh, but some forms of protest throughout the years. So it's a bit more complicated, you see, uh, Sueda. And what we witnessed in the past few weeks, it was, now it's been a bit uh, repressed. I don't know if you saw it being repressed by Baas's sector within Sueda, but it's always a situation of challenging the centers of power. For example, all the people that were arrested in the Sueda protest a few weeks ago were liberated by the militia I was mentioning. So they, they asked uh, the liberation of these uh, people. What, but what was interesting is that, you know, challenging the Assad regime, challenging the allies of Assad regime, uh, asking Iran and Russia to go out of Syria. And really, this time with a clear demand around social justice issue. Uh, this was very much uh, put forward, and there was an interesting mix of people between youth from the universities or youth, you know, seeking for work, and a more older generation from leftist background, etc., organizing the protests. Uh, when it comes to Dera, uh, maybe people should know that Dera just came back under the regime's control in 2018 in the so-called reconciliation agreement, and therefore, since the two past years you still had former opposition groups maintaining their arms. And you had, you know, a lot of killing of, um, of security forces from the regime by these groups and constant, not constant form of ballots, but uh, forms of clashes that occurred in Dera in the past two years. Uh, and attempts of the regime to re really control completely uh, Dera, uh, etc. And so it's a mix, again, of people not being satisfied by the way the, the so-called reconciliation agreement was made, because uh, public services did not come back, insecurity com continued, arrests continued where they should not have been, and accompanied, again, with uh, socioeconomic demands. The last uh, issue was uh, also there was protest in Jaramana. Jaramana is, is very interesting because it's in, in Damascus province, 
very close to, to, to the capital and linked historically to Sueda. But during the war, the city that was not, during the whole war during, uh, under the control of the regime saw its population pass from around 200,000 people to nearly a million because you had people from uh, other sectors of Damascus province leaving areas that were bombed and people that were historically linked to Sueda. And you had also protests over there. So you can see, and I will conclude in this, that um, yes, and, and the, unfortunately the thing is the protests are, are not linked to each other. There's no coordination uh, uh, between them. They might be solidarity in words with placards, particular placards, but there's nothing to unify them. Um, and today the, the opposition in exile is very much uh, uh, what term should I use? Um, discredited, to, to speak uh, politely, uh, and, and cannot reach wider sections uh, of the population while lacking any kind of, um, uh, of um, power on the ground or reaches to the ground. Uh, Gilbert, would you like to add anything to that picture that Joe has painted? Um, I mean, uh, I think it's also important to 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 clarify that uh, when you say the regime is in control, the question is who is in control of the regime? Because the regime, is, what is the regime actually? What is the Syrian regime? You know, this is a, a regime that is entirely dependent on two uh, foreign uh, powers. One is an international global power, which is Russia, and the second is a regional power, which is Iran. And uh, uh, they control whole sections of, of the country. They control the regime itself. And you will find in any, uh, you know, uh, kind of comments on the Syrian situation by people who are very familiar with what's going on there, they will tell you this, this section of the security forces is Iranian and this other is Russian. I mean, we're speaking of sections of the same, I mean, the, the apparatuses, the security apparatuses of the Syrian regime. So it's a regime that is totally under control of foreign powers. And therefore, this is the, the big uh, 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 qualification that we should add when you say the regime is in control of this or that percentage of the, of the uh, territory. And basically, beyond that, this is a country where you have five occupation uh, forces. Uh, uh, and this is by also grouping all the forces that are connected to Iran into one because otherwise you would have more than five. But if you put all the forces connected to Iran into one under one chapter, then you have the oldest occupation, which is the, the Israeli one. Then you have the, 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 the Iranian, you have the Russian, you have the US, and the Turkish, of course. The, the, the Turkish one is, uh, is a, a very uh, important factor there. So uh, um, th this is, I mean, definitely nothing that could be really described as a victory of the regime. It's a disastrous, absolutely disastrous situation. But uh, I would also add uh, a little point, which is what we are seeing now, and as uh, Joe pointed uh, to, uh, are now protests related to the 
economic situation. This is now what is dominant. And the point is what we we are seeing in Syria here fits into the category of what we have seen in Iraq and we have seen in Lebanon, where the economic uh, question unifies the people against those in power. You know, that's very important. And that's why the, even in, in areas that are supposed to be under regime control, you are seeing now people rising up. They wouldn't rise up in defense of, uh, of those who are in Idlib. They wouldn't rise up in de- in, uh, because they, they support the opposition. Not at all. It's completely discredited. I mean, the official the opposition in exile, as uh, Joe said. But they are rising up for their own interests. They are rising up for their bread, for their livelihood. They can't, you know, I mean, and that's what you have in Lebanon and Iraq also. You have a unification of the popular movement in all these countries against the power that be. It happens that Iran plays a major role in the three countries. Uh, but the, the those movements are not against Iran alone. They are against Iran and the United States and the Saudi Kingdom and everybody. They are against everything. And one of their slogans is in Lebanon, you know, the, the famous slogan of uh, all of them means all of them, in Arabic, uh, which which is very indicative of, of, of that. So it's, it's putting the things horizontally, at, at, uh, uh, I mean, as a horizontal solidarity, against those, I mean, from below, against those uh, at, the, at the top. And that also points to the, 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 the one of the shortcomings of the Syrian uprising at the, at the start, which was the failure of putting such demands, uh, 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 you know, uh, and, and only focusing on, 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 uh, on the uh, political demands. Had you had uh, some kind of uh, socially more radical kind of orientation of the uprising, uh, things might have been different. And anyhow, the movement then would not have accepted as representatives an opposition in exile, which if you compare it to, for instance, what the Sudanese popular movement accepted as a representative of it, it is far, far, far to the right of that. It is a, it, it's completely right-wing compared to uh, the, the kind of leadership that emerged as popular leadership in a country like, uh, like, uh, like Sudan. So um, uh, that's why also ever since the, the uprising uh, mutated into a civil war in, in Syria, and with the intervention of the Gulf countries and the United States and uh, everybody in, in trying to, to, uh, to steer uh, the opposition, the opposition forces, uh, the, the whole uh, political, uh, I mean, the, the, the whole, uh, let's say, the, the whole framework of the political uh, conflict shifted completely from a democratic one into one uh, representing basically what I would call a clash between counter-revolutionary forces, because there were counter-revolutionary programs on both uh, sides. And that's why, from the point of view of the interest of the Syrian people, whether the humanitarian or the political or the economic or any any kind of, of interest, uh, the best would have been, I mean, the, the, the sooner 
this whole war would would have stopped, the better it is. The problem is that, is that it's not completely over, and uh, I wish it were even beyond that over, because then you would have more Dara and more Suida possible, because then people wouldn't see it any longer as a kind of, uh, you know, uh, either sectarian uh, threat or the threat of some uh, uh, ultra-fundamentalist forces or whatever, they would just look after their interests, their social, economic, their class interests. And that is the most important if you want to have a sustained revolutionary dynamics in any country. This phrase, uh, Gilbert, the clash of counter-revolutionary forces is, I think, a very salient one because it speaks to a kind of, um, you know, there's a widespread sense uh, um, amongst many uh, activists, uh, leftists around the world that, you know, it's very well understood that Saudi Arabia and more recently the, its partner in the United Arab Emirates uh, and Qatar and other countries in the region, particularly the Gulf monarchies, represent a, um, a, a pillar of counter-revolution uh, against progressive forces in the region, against um, the Arab uprisings, against popular mobilizations. Okay, that's well understood. The role of Saudi Arabia and its allies in the Gulf as counter-revolutionary forces is very well understood. There's a huge literature on it, and it's a um, no, it's an uncontroversial point. What's a little bit murkier, however, is the counter-revolutionary role of the other side of the equation. So the the counter-revolutionary role that Iran and Hezbollah play, um, particularly in the Syrian conflict, but more recently in Iraq and in Lebanon. So you know, in the minds of many uh, activists, leftists anti-imperialists in the West, because Saudi Arabia is clearly understood as a counter-revolutionary force, and because Iran is Saudi Arabia's uh, a competitor, because I Iran and Saudi Arabia have a regional rivalry and or a cold war um, in the region, it's somehow believed that Iran represents an axis of resistance along with its allies in Hezbollah. Uh, and 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 so on. And so I, I want to put to both Joseph and uh, Gilbert, who have done some of the most important writing on this. I mean, Joe, you've written an entire book um, debunking the myth that Hezbollah is some sort of resistance force. Um, uh, you were in, in, in and it pres it presents a critique of what you call the political economy of Lebanon's party of God. Can you can the two of you address this this mythology? that somehow what you have in the region is a battle between the counter-revolutionary forces of Saudi Arabia on the one hand and its allies, and then on the other hand, this axis of resistance in the form of Syria, Iran, and Hezbollah on the other. Um, can, you, can you talk about what's wrong with that uh, perception? Let's start with Joe. Yeah, thank you, Dan. Yeah, I can add one more axis of uh, counter-revolution, if you want. It's Turkey and Qatar uh, that have played also a very much counter-revolutionary role and still playing uh, as such uh, throughout uh, the region. And uh, if you want to, to see what's happening in Syria, the, the, the particular role of, uh, of Turkey regarding the, the assistance it has given to reactionary militias, which has led, for example, to the... Um, the occupation of Afrin 
with uh, you know demographic change, with uh, forced displacement of 300,000 people. Uh, and more generally, Turkey and Qatar have supported, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood and other form of Islamic fundamentalist forces, which uh, we've mentioned have played a very much counter-revolutionary uh, role in the region uh, throughout uh, uh, different countries and since 2011. So we could add different, uh, you know, counter-revolutionary counter axes, but I thought it was important. But, well, uh, comes to to Iran and and Hezbollah. What I think is very important is that, to some extent, unfortunately, even among anti-war movement, anti-imperialism has been very much limited to opposition to the U.S. So a very much uh, misunderstanding, I would say, of imperialism and how you have various rival capitalist uh, states, uh, you know, struggling, uh, struggling against each other, but also collaborating with each, with each other. And we should always uh, remind people that, for example, in Iraq, Iran and the U.S. have been collaborating when it comes since the, you know, the first elected governments, uh, the prime minister, the, the main, uh, uh, were collaborating for most part. That's a good point. And in Syria, of course, the United States and Russia have collaborated on Indeed. many, many more things that, than they have uh, uh, opposed one another. Indeed. And you had Afghanistan before with uh, Iran and uh, the U.S. 2001. But as I said, I think it's a it's a problem that is rooted, you know, only seeing kind of um, the only imperialist actor being the U.S. But more importantly, you never uh, analyze or judge a state according solely to its foreign policy. But you should judge a state according to its uh, policies regarding its popular classes, socioeconomic issues, etc. And this, I think, as internationalist socialists, is the first thing we should do. Uh, if we fail to do this, we can reach, for example, typically uh, the, the the kind of discourse that see Hezbollah and Iran uh, as resistant actor, even anti-imperialist, while they're suggesting another authoritarian project that is different from, obviously, the, the authoritarian project supported by uh, the U.S. through various proxies, etc., and we should oppose both. We shouldn't choose uh, between them. And uh, also, whether Hezbollah and Lebanon, that now has become the main actor since the October's uprising, opposing the protest movement. And Hassan Nasrallah's first speech during the, the uprising in October in Lebanon was very much aggressive, ac accusing the protesters of being, you know, funded by foreign embassies. To which most of the protesters would react saying, you're funded by hundreds of millions of dollars by Iran, so how can you accuse us of being uh, funded by foreign embassies? Uh, but more generally, his role, Hezbollah's role in Syria or in Lebanon has been counter-revolutionary. And Hezbollah is today the one of the key actors of the ruling class in Lebanon, and is today actually more and more pulling back uh, the former prime minister, Saha Hariri, to come back in place and has not opposed various neoliberal policies and governments, etc. So we could go on. And in Iran, also, you have similar uh, kind of political orientation when it comes to liberalization of the economy, of, uh, you know, uh, of repression towards um, uh, labor movement, labor unions. So, again, it's not about choosing this kind of uh, various axes of country, I would say, 
But again, always having our uh, our base of support in protest movement, asking for for the demanding democracy and social justice. So, would you agree that although Iran and Saudi Arabia are at odds with one another, are and are engaged in a war of position uh, in terms of the geopolitics of the region, despite this um, this this battle between Iran and Saudi Arabia, they both have counter-revolutionary agendas, and there's a sense in which they are uh, dual counter-revolutionary forces in the region. Indeed. Yes, definitely. Uh, um, Gilbert, did you want to add anything to that? Um, well, it's a, it's a vast topic, so yes, we, we can add. Uh, starting by adding that uh, before the, the, the regional configuration, you have also the global one. And the same people who believe that uh, Iran is a, uh, is a uh, anti-imperialist progressive force uh, usually believe that Russia is. Again, something like that, and some of them. I mean, we have that, for instance, into parts of the communist of the remnants of the communist movement in the Arab countries who still believe that Russia is the Soviet Union, <laughs> and Putin. That sounds, you know, like Lenin and Stalin. So that's uh, that should be fine. <laughs> and, and and you know, and when you think of that, I mean, uh, Russia is by any standard an imperialist country, like the United States. It's an imperialist country, except that it's 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 in, 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 from the point of view of the social and political system, it's much worse than the United States because it's a completely authoritarian regime. Uh, Trump would love to be in the position of Putin. That's why he admires Putin so much. You know, he's, he's a great admirer of, of Vladimir Putin because Vladimir Putin has what Trump doesn't have. That is this ability of doing whatever he wants, controlling the country completely. And add to that that the social economic system, the, the kind of, of neoliberal, if you want, regime that you have in, in Russia is far worse than anything you have in any Western country. And yet, and when you see how, how Russia treats the, the Chechen people, for instance, how it did it, uh, how it intervenes here and there, it's, it's, I mean, and the kind of monopolies that you have now in Russia, like uh, the gas and oil and gas monopolies. So uh, uh, this is, uh, uh, in the full sense of the term, an imperialist, a capitalist, and a vicious uh, uh, capitalist country. And therefore, uh, to believe that this, uh, uh, I mean, you can, you should support Russia, or Russia is on the side of anti-imperialists, is it, just, you know, it's just falling into what uh, precisely, because these, uh, I mean, the same people would refer to, for instance, Lenin, well, the, 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 the Bolsheviks, uh, the First World War, their kind of attitude was precisely rejecting the, the siding with any imperialism and opposing all of them at the same time. So this kind of internationalism uh, seems have to have been very much weakened uh, uh, now nowadays. And then secondly, if you shift to the uh, regional level, yes, of course, the Saudi United Arab Emirates and Egypt uh, axis uh, is an axis of evil, if you want to use the the the, the Bush uh, the Bush kind of term. Sarah could could tell you a lot about their intervention in Sudan. They are uh, the key uh, foreign re reactionary re counter revolutionary force in Sudan. They are backing the worst people in Sudan, including those militias, which are actually major part now of of the regime and the, the military forces. Uh, but uh, but uh, the, the same, for instance, can convert 
terms with uh, with Russia, and as is the case in Libya, uh, where Russia and uh, Egypt and the United Arab Emirates are intervening militarily on the same side in backing the same Haftar uh, kind of, uh, I mean, the 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 the, the Haftar forces in in Libya, um, and 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 finally, yes, I mean. Just imagine this, uh, Danny, uh, a party that is called the party of God, right? Hezbollah. And, yeah. And that regards as its main uh, model and completely supports and is very narrowly linked to the only theocratic state in the world, if you accept the Vatican. Uh, the, the Vatican is a mini-state where the Pope is elected by uh, his peers. Well, in, in in Iran, which is a real state, the supreme guide is elected by his peers, and that's the, the supreme authority in the country, right? And so this is the only real theocracy in today's world. Uh, it's a, a viciously neoliberal kind of, of, uh, of, of regime. So from wh- whichever angle you take it, to believe that this is uh, something that is in the left on the left is just you know mind boggling. I mean, you, you just how can anyone who is really on the, on the left uh, see in that something? That, now, the fact that they clash with Israel and the United States is one thing. The fact that they are progressive is a completely different thing. I can I mean. Uh, the classical historical example was when uh, fascist Italy attacked Ethiopia. Okay, uh, so I mean, as an anti-imperialist, you would stand with the Ethiopian uh, people, with even the Ethiopian state, against the fascist Italian invasion. But does it mean that you support uh, Haile Selassie, one of the most reactionary, slave-owning kind of regimes that you had at the time? So the the, the point is uh, is is here. You can stand with uh, with I mean, I have absolutely no problem standing with Hezbollah against an Israeli. Uh, intervention in Lebanon. I have no problem standing with Iran against uh, U.S. aggression. This is normal. But at the same time, I have absolutely uh, uh, no illusion about the, 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 what uh, these forces represent on the social and political level and, and the fact that from the class point of view, if you want, they are part of the enemy. They are not part of the revolutionary camp. And that was seen very clearly in the recent uprising in Lebanon, uh, the same for the uh, Iran-linked forces in Iraq, uh, where these forces indeed uh, came out very strongly against the protest movement and even tried to physically repress it. It's not only uh, speeches, it's physical yeah, yeah. attempts at physical repression in with uh, people killed in Iraq. A lot of people killed in Iraq not in Lebanon, but in Lebanon you had uh, physical violence. So, so we have to keep that uh, in in mind. And uh, and again, what, what does it mean to be uh, you know a revolutionary and all that if uh, if if such basic things you can't see? Uh, wh- why are you on the left? Are you on the left just because you are? against Washington, and therefore you support anything that is against Washington, or are you against Washington because you are for democracy, social justice, etc.? If if the second, then you have to be against all enemies of democracy and social justice, not only Washington. Washington being a major one of them, but not the only one. 
And just to underscore your point about Russia, Gilbert, and its uh, allegiances, um, uh, Vanessa Gezari of The Intercept noted that has noted that the um, Mueller report highlights this is quote highlights Russia's relationship with the UAE and with these Gulf states, which has been longstanding and has involved a lot of economic and business exchange, as well as a sort of common idea about the importance of autocratic rulers in the world and how they should be supported and questioning any kind of dissident movements that come up against them. So I mean, she says, I mean, I think these countries have really made common cause with each other. And so when you see that, like in the case of the Seychelles meeting, it's a clear line from Russia to the UAE to the Trump administration. Yeah, they yeah. have in common. Sorry. No, just Danny, Sarah wanted to jump in before on the... Please, okay. Sarah. Yeah, I just um, wanted to go back to Iran because um, when we mentioned the uprisings or this wave of uprisings in the Arab world, of course, we're speaking about the Arab world, but um, we've been talking about the Iranian regime, but not so much the fact that um, around the same time uh, of the uprising in Iraq, there was also a mass uprising in Iran. Um, I think this is very, very important because we tend to talk about Iran often as the regime. I mean, it's a powerful regime. It obviously has its hands in many different places. But um, first of all, the economic situation, this is something that across this, the Arab region, uh, which of course, you know, I, I, I have a friend who has also pointed out that we keep saying Arab Spring, but of course it's not just Arabs in this region. I mean, there's a lot of other groups that have also been part of these uprisings, but Iran as well, it's, it's, um, the economic situation is terrible. The, the repression has been terrible. I remember when the uprising happened there, um, I think within a few days, about 800 people have been killed by, by the regime. There are still um, people that are on death row for participating in these protests. But um, there is much, much obviously more in common between many of the Iranian masses and these other countries where the Iranian regime is intervening and actually uh, both economically and politically playing a role and exploiting them as in Syria than they have with the regimes themselves. So this is incredibly important, I think, and it's something that we really should talk about. I often think in the Sudanese case as well, um, if I focus my gaze at the level of what the, 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 the formal political structures are doing, um, I, it's, it's, it looks much worse than if I look at these movements and what they're saying and what they're asking. And I think this is incredibly important. In the case of Sudan, I mean, Iran, uh, it's very far from us, but of course it has also in the early years of our regime, that it was a source of inspiration for the, um, for the Inqaz regime, as we call it in Sudan, al-Bashir and Hassan al-Turabi at the time. They also gave material support. But um, in many, there's many parallels also at the level of, of, of movements and the kind of diversity in the country. But I think also if we look to Ethiopia also in recent years, this is a neighboring country of our, in recent months, weeks, there's been also very big um, protests. And a lot of them, again, uh, you know, we have this issue of the form of neoliberal governance, the kinds of people are, I think there's something very much going on where there's a palpable sense of um, 
people are fed up with the economic inequality, with the inability to sustain their lives, with the lack of action and with the neoliberal policies. So even our own government, right, we keep saying this is the, you know, the popular forces. Yes, definitely they're better. The, the civilian uh, components of this government are much better than many in the other region, but the government is still having a neoliberal bent. And so also one of the questions I have and I want to ask about these revolutionary movements is there is also the issue of things that we share, for example, debt, um, the mass debt burden that we are dealing with, which means that groups like the IMF and, you know, the Western countries as well. I mean, in our case, you know, uh, and I think this is the case also in Turkey, in Egypt, in Libya. The, the European Union is, a, in many ways, you could also say a counter-revolutionary force in the sense that through the development agendas and so forth, there is cooperation on this issue of externalized borders, which means that in our case, for example, the Janjaweed RSF militia could never have been that powerful without the kind of concrete support to this uh, border policies that the EU has uh, done and collaborated with the al-Bashir regime to, to carry out in the region. This is in Libya, in Egypt, in Turkey, in many different places. And I think this is also something that many of these countries share. So that's just something that I wanted to mention as well. It's not just Saudi Arabia and Egypt and, and the UAE. Um, in, in Sudan's case, for example, the EU's main interest in that region is uh, the issue of migration, to try to control migration, to prevent migrants from reaching the Mediterranean. And for the U.S., the war on terror, I mean, from, from Somalia onto that whole uh, region, there's a lot of interest also in that in that agenda. Thanks for bringing in that global perspective. That's a really those are really important points, Sara. Um, either uh, Joe or Gilbert, would either of you like to um, comment on that? I just want to note also that we have a few questions from the audience for all three of you, and we want to have time for them. But before we move to audience questions, would either of you like to respond to Sada's point? I'm fine. No, I, I totally agree. And I think uh, actually you have a lot of European Union countries that really want to go back to the situation pre-2011 with a, a new Gaddafi. And it's important we were talking about so-called anti-imperialist, how Gaddafi was presented as an anti-imperialist while he was the main, if you want, gatekeeper so-called and, uh, you know, paid by the European Union to keep, uh, you know, migrants from coming to, to Europe. And I think this is important to say, and I totally agree with Sarah, the, 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 the contract of shame that was, uh, that is on, until now uh, between European Union and Turkey. And Turkey is using this as a bargaining uh, ship as well. And the refugees are being used as a bargaining ship in a odious way. So, no, I totally agree uh, uh, with this. Really important. Um, all right, we have several uh, questions. Uh, Miriam Asfar wants to know, what do speakers think about Morocco? Uh, the reef is a leading flame and highlights two things, in my opinion. The place of Africa, Sudan and Morocco are core cases of second wave analysis. The importance of regional prism, state as a prism, is not informative to understand dynamics in Morocco seeing the weight of the Reef region. At the same time, Reef can't be understood without Mahzan state. Uh, would anyone like to comment on that? Any of the three uh, of you? I can uh, comment if you want, but uh, uh, 
uh, the, I mean, Morocco has been part of uh, of the the first wave in a less spectacular form than the uprisings that you had in six countries in the region, but it witnessed an important uh, social movement uh, for for uh, for many months, and uh, and then this could be diffused by the monarchy through some uh, political moves and through uh, co-opting uh, one of the Islamic forces uh, in in uh, in the country. But then the same issue is, uh, applies to Morocco as to the rest. That is the social economic deep roots of the of the uprisings uh, were there, and it kept simmering and every now and then boiling here and there. You had various uh, regional uh, um, instances of, of struggle, and of course, up to the 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 the, the, the reef, uh, the, the the reef struggle, which was uh, very important. Unfortunately, it uh, that's another case of of defeat because we have had and we are will still have uh, many defeats in, in the years to come. The key point are not the defeats. The key point is that you have movements. And they are defeated, okay, but they will, I mean, they, they will come come to the fore again. Presently, the situation in Morocco is quite uh, reactionary. The, 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 the regime has also seized the, the opportunity of uh, COVID and other issues. There is a crackdown on the... On uh, on political freedoms, on political expression, on on uh, on uh, criti- any forms of criticisms of the of of the uh, the the, uh, the the regime. Um, uh, it will. I mean, uh, the 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 what uh, what we have uh, seen uh, in in other countries where you had much more repressive uh, regimes means that uh, sooner or later uh, this is a country where you will have um, the, the i mean which will reach, uh, reach the, the boiling point and go into a major uprising mode it hasn't been the case yet but uh, sooner or later, this will happen. Uh, like Sudan, this is a country that had not at the same level that you had in Sudan in 64 and 85, but uh, in the early 80s, you had a major uprising in Casablanca. It was a social uprising. And uh, and uh, the country will, will, uh, will see something uh, like this uh, uh, for, for sure in, in the coming period where the social economic conditions are aggravated by the uh, the global now huge economic crisis if if i may then add two points if I, yeah Please. no what i think is interesting with the reef and i will make a comparison with, with syria is that the, the reef is is two, two important things to say is that it is a particular area of the majority identity berber so a minority that has been to some extent, you know, discriminated in Morocco with socioeconomic deprivation. It's not a minority, it's a vast majority. In okay, it's a vast majority, I'm sorry, but it has been, It's uh, there's a kind of uh, Arab domination, let's say. Uh, let's put it this way, but you're right, it's uh, demographically speaking, it's a majority. But it's always a test in the beginning of the uprisings that when it's in, the, in, in a periphery with a particular ad- identity, to join it with the more general uh, uprising. And we, often what was the answer in Morocco, for example, against the Reef was saying, basically they're separatists. This is a separatist uprising trying to de- 
uh, to divide the movement. And this is something we've seen also uh, in Syria regarding, you know, when it comes to Kurdish interests, uh, Kurdish political and socioeconomic interests. For example, the Northeast, which is just in agriculture, oil, etc., was the most impoverished area of Syria and still is to many extent uh, and majority inhabited by um, uh, Kurdish population. And as soon there were particular Kurdish demands, they were accused of being separatist. And until now, the domain, whether from, and this is where the opposition, main opposition actors and the regime agrees, is that to call the Kurds separatists for the vast majority. And I think while the uprising were opening the, uh, you know, the, the ability to to exchange between various uh, populations or communities of Syria, as soon as with the militarization and the counter-revolutionary forces, this opening was, was closed. But I think this is something also very important that this uprising also opened to some extent in particular countries, the possibility to take, uh, to talk about, to tackle about minority issues that is linked for, very often with socioeconomic issues. That's an important point. And let me just plug, uh, there's a chapter in Joe's book, Syria After the Uprisings, devoted to the, the Kurdish question in Syria, a very good one. Uh, and there was a, a webinar just a few days ago um, in this series on uh, Kurdish self-determination, Kurdish struggles in Syria and uh, regionally. And that is, uh, the video of that webinar is available at uh, syrianrevolt.org. Sara, did you want to add anything to this uh, question? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's very interesting that Miriam um, mentioned the Reef movement in Morocco because, precisely because it, it's a country that's also linked to the first wave of uprisings. I mean, as, as Gilbert mentioned, somehow the monarchy there um, managed to um, try to take the steam out of the movement there through constitutional reform and other ways. But sort of following the, the, the reef mobilizations and protests and movements um, in the last few years, uh, it's very inspiring. And I think we, we also have to move away from um, I think you know what what is a what is a revolution? What isn't? What is a successful uprising? What is a failure? And really try to look at these dynamics of social movement change in different contexts with different configurations. And I think Morocco is an incredibly interesting uh, case of that uh, that should be followed and supported very closely. Jordan is another one of those, of course, that also has had some really interesting. Um, mobilizations and protests and is, is also had lessons to, to, to give the rest of us as well. So, I mean, I don't want to add anything specific, but I think that it's a really good thing that she brought up um, also Morocco in this context. Excellent. We have another question from Professor Moja Khaf, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. poet. Yeah, but may I say Please. one thing just before uh, Danny, because on the same topic, uh, I think, I mean, one, uh, I understand uh, the, uh, 
what uh, Joe was trying to 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 uh, to to do. But we shouldn't put or believe that the reef movement is like the Kurdish movement no. in uh, in uh, in Syria. Uh, uh, that's um, I mean that's why I said they are not. I mean the the, the Amazigh are not a minority in Morocco. They are the majority of the population, and uh, the the movement in the reef did not start on on any kind of uh, national or ethnic issue or whatever. It started on a social issue, very much uh, like uh, the Tunisian uh, uprising in December 2010, uh, with uh, with uh, you know a, a tragic uh, uh, case, a tragic incident, which was very much a re- uh, I mean uh, re- revealing the the, the, the social economic uh, uh, oppression that you have uh, in in the country. So just uh, just I just wanted to because someone listening to us might believe that uh, these are are similar kind of uh, regional autonomist uh, uh, or national movement as the case of the Kurds, actually. Joe, did you want to respond to that? No, no, I agree. I just, uh, I think it's interesting just to put forward that there are particular identity issues that we bring forward, but that's, I'm not in contradiction, just wanted to make parallel, but I totally agree with Gilbert. Okay, we have a question from Moja Khaf, a poet and activist. Um, uh, she says, I would suggest that perhaps the Syrian revolution in 2011 had an emerging female leadership that was pushed aside by counter-revolutionary forces. Would anyone care to comment? I specifically have in mind two women from early 2011 who had brought together large numbers of local coordinating committees into two of the four earliest coalitions of LCCs. Joe, would you like to take that one? Yes, definitely. Uh, when, uh, in the, uh, the leadership of the LCC, you had uh, half uh, women, uh, half of the women were, uh, half of the leadership, sorry, were, were women, and including Hazan Zaytoune, and other, one of the other kind of uh, coordination committees, you had Suhair Atasi. So you had different, uh, definitely, um, women playing a key role within, you know, uh, different uh, committee, com- uh, committee coordination committees and uh, uh, local coordination committees and others. Uh, this is for certain, and it's not to uh, what I, I mentioned in the beginning of the need of a, a strong women movement. It does to deny that in in Syria we haven't witnessed you know a strong participation of women from below, in uh, especially in the two first years uh, of the uprising in various areas of uh, Syria. This was. Uh, the case, but it wasn't a, an independent mass uh, women movement because of the various difficulties that uh, were facing uh, Syria. And increasingly, uh, obviously, the militarization and uh, the rise of uh, various uh, Islamic fundamentalist forces and extremist forces, but also within uh, opposition um, uh, representation actors in exile such as the Syrian National Council or the Etilaf, pushing out women's representation or even undermining women's rights, uh, etc. So it's not only actors on the ground, but it was also the political uh, opposition in exile that completely put aside because of of the collaboration, notably with the Muslim Brotherhood, but all the other conservative conservative actors completely put aside women's representation and uh, women's rights. Sara, would you like to uh, add anything to that or uh, respond to uh, Moja Khaf's question? Uh, 
Um, I, I think this is a dynamic that you see across many of these uprisings, um, the pushing aside of women who are uh, often critical to the uprisings themselves. But when it comes to these periods of what, what do you do with power after, um, we're, we're experiencing this in Sudan right now as we speak. Um, there's been uh, definitely an attempt to marginalize women, even though if you look at not just, I mean, of course, this has gotten a lot of attention, the, the, the sheer number and the visibility of women in the struggle um, in Sudan was very clear. But also, um, they were women's groups were politically positioned as well. I mean, they're two of the um, less than 20 signatories of the Declaration for Freedom of Change are two big coalitions, the No to the Oppression of Women Coalition and uh, Mensam, which is a, also a coalition of women activists. Um, you have the Sudanese Women's Union, which is a very, you know, it's been repressed by different dictatorships, but it has a very old history. And you have a proliferation of, of uh, organizing by women also since. And yet uh, we see, for example, the peace process being uh, carried out at the moment um, towards its, it's, it's supposed to be towards its conclusions. And uh, it's a very old style politics. It's not revolutionary politics where, you know, you make a space for women with no intersectional lens whatsoever to, to give women's opinions. Total mar'a, you know, it's an article, woman's voice, as if it's one. Uh, there is a problem of representation in transitional structures uh, of governance. This is something that women's activists particularly have focused on. But of course, women in, for example, the Nertiti sit-in right now and other areas have highlighted issues of sexual violence that they've been facing for, you know, at least in that force since 2003, since the conflict began, where you have, you know, rape as a systematic practice in the war. Um, and we, it's a battle. And that kind of leads me to one very important lesson, which is you can have a lot of women's, rep women's participation and so forth. I think one of my comrades said, you know, it's when women are not there that we, we should be noting it, not when they are there. That's an important point. But for me, it's really about the importance of a, a parallel, strong feminist movement, because you cannot assume that the general movement is uh, going to position the interests of women in an intersectional way um, in these processes. And in fact, it's another struggle within the struggle. And so I'm, you know, this is the, the case in Syria with the case in Egypt. It's the case in many of these. Uh, and we really need to network also on this and learn lessons also across borders on this, uh, on this issue as well. Indeed. We, we have a question from Argentina from Professor Jodor Jalit. Um, at the 3rd of February State University in Buenos Aires. Um, thank you to the organizers, the moderator, and panelists. I would like to ask about the role of the diaspora in the uprising. Lebanese and Syrian diaspora institutions in Argentina continue to deny the socioeconomic demands raised by the uprisings. Even when the gravity of the situation is recognized, the Lebanese rhetoric may take on a sectarian tone while the Syri while Syrians tend to blame external pressure. Can you comment on the role, if any, of diaspora for the uprisings, be it in Lebanon, Syria, or Sudan? And that's, uh, I'm glad that uh, we have this question because Sara, I was gonna ask you about that earlier in the discussion because you are involved, for example, in um, an organization that I believe is called Sudan Uprising Germany. And uh, I've, 
been in touch with a number of Sudanese activists and intellectuals all over in Canada, uh, the UK, uh, the US, and uh, and it seems to me that in the Sudanese case that the uh, this network, this transnational network of solidarity activists and uh, uh, people connected to the Sudanese professional uh, uh, professionals association has been quite has played a quite critical role in the movement. Yeah, the the diaspora has been very much an actor, I think, in the Sudanese revolution. I mean. Um, very, it mobilized also very early. I mean, it, it also goes back to the to the prior to the revolution. I mean, we we've had successive waves of um, migration and displacement, starting from the early '90s after the Al Bashir coup, where um, people were uh, were mass fired from public institutions uh, and replaced. Some of those have left, but of course, the main migration has been because of the war, the conflict uh, issues and the economic collapse as well. And um, and the diaspora, so a lot of the Sudanese diaspora is already quite politicized and that helped. But what also helped was organizing again. I mean, you have organizations like both, for example, some of the Darfurian armed movements who have extensions in the outside through these populations that are in France and elsewhere. But you also have um, the SBA has branches in different places. You have an extension of organizing between the inside and the outside. And I would say this has also been critical, particularly in the during the height of the protest, not just because the diaspora, especially in the first month when there was no media visibility in the international media or the Arab media, actually much of the it wasn't being taken very seriously what was happening in Sudan. I mean, it was diaspora that was pushing to get information out, but to also get resources into the country, particularly uh, to treat the injured, for example, and so forth. I think that diaspora's role at the moment is more complicated in some ways, in the sense that, for example, if I think of the U.S. where my family went into exile in the early 90s, that's the diaspora that I'm most firm, even though I live in Germany, um, there is also some of the neoliberal ideas coming into the idea of technocracy and what is it that this professional new government that is not corrupt going to do? They're also coming through us as well. Um, but I think, you know, groups like the one I'm involved in here, it's, it's been very important to also support the revolution from the outside. I mean, us having spoken about how important it is to counter the counter revolution, mm -hmm. which is coming from different parts of the world. We also have a role to play in those countries and to to kind of keep keep that momentum going. And so this is, for example, what we try to do here by really trying to to both support the the more revolutionary parts of the movement there, but also to challenge some of the discourse about the neutrality of the European Union in the Sudanese case and so forth. Gilbert, as someone who was born in the Lebanese diaspora in Senegal, uh, would you like to uh, comment on this uh, on this question from Argentina? Um, yeah, I, I think uh, the importance of the the, the diaspora's role uh, is proportional to the degree of freedoms that you have in the country. And uh, that's why the role of diasporas have been much uh, more, much bigger in the case of uh, countries like Sudan 
and Syria than in the case of Lebanon. Uh, Lebanon, you have a very large diaspora, but uh, to say that it played a key role in the uprising is it would be exaggerated. I mean, it tried to link up because, uh, I mean, you have generations of diaspora, but those with uh, uh, ongoing links with the country try to link up with, uh, or part of the people try to link up with the, the movement. You had the same splits uh, among the, the, the people outside that, uh, than, than you had inside. But but that's very limited when you compare with Syria and, and Sudan. And Syria and Sudan are, we can contrast them also in the role of of the diaspora, in the sense that, uh, as uh, Sarah explained, uh, the uh, Sudanese diaspora uh, was very helpful for the movement inside the country. It uh, it was at the service, if you want, of the movement inside the country. At some point, for instance, when the, the regime uh, tried to suppress the internet and the communications tools of the movement uh, within Sudan, uh, knowing that, for instance, for the SPA, uh, the internet was a very important uh, tool in its uh, political organization. Well, the diaspora stepped in and uh, and and helped in that uh, in that regard. Uh, uh, whereas in Syria, uh, what what happened is that uh, the political opposition in exile ended up, you know, uh, 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 how to say. Um, uh, 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 proclaiming itself as uh, the representative of uh, of the uprising, and that was connected to the weakness of organization inside the country. Uh, big difference with with uh, with, uh, with Sudan, and and that role uh, proved fatal actually to the the Syrian revolution. So the, the, here we have a major difference. I think diasporas can play very useful role, but provided the movement inside the country is organized uh, as uh, uh, as uh, uh, it should be uh, for uh, to in facing a revolutionary process. That's a, a very very important difference here. Uh, I think that Sarah, want, Sarah oh, wants to say I something. Just, I just wanted to say I completely agree with um, Gilbert. I think there are, you know, you do meet, there have been attempts from people on the outside in the past to, you know, you have a Twitter account and you have a lot of followers and you, 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 you want to mobilize the revolution inside Sudan. It doesn't work like that. I mean, if there isn't the structures and their extensions and that relationship and, and a framework, um, I personally I don't think in the case of Sudan, any any groups based on the outside could have uh, led the revolution. The reason it worked is because it was a supportive role. It was supporting the organizing inside the country and being an extension of it. I also wanted to say in the Lebanese case, I mean, it's a very small part of their movement there, but I find it in incredibly hopeful that there have been attempts by some groups there to try to really network and organize amongst workers, also the Sudanese who are, you know, living there and working some very difficult and menial jobs in Lebanon, who are an important part of the uh, of the working class, but also Ethiopian um, domestic worker, the kafala system in Lebanon. It's it's a small part of it, but I think it's it's incredibly important and interesting. And we haven't seen something like that in Sudan, for example, or elsewhere, where you try to organize along class lines 
And this this is another view of a diaspora, right? And about these revolutions and the learning that I don't think we pay a lot of attention to and that is really important and critical. So I'm interested in that within in Lebanon, actually, what is these this types of attempts to do this uh, sort of not to organize along national lines or nationalistic lines, but along class lines and try to network workers, um, Lebanese and non-Lebanese, including the Sudanese and the Ethiopians. Um, well, on that note, uh, it is time to bring things to a close, but I like the idea that, um, you know, this theme of social movement learning, revolutionary learning has come up several times in this discussion. I'd like to think that this uh, panel today has itself perhaps played a small role in a kind of uh, cross-cutting social movement learning and can contribute to further uh, discussion down the road. I want to thank you uh, tremendously to each of our panelists. This has been a fabulously rich and thought-provoking conversation. I want to extend my gratitude to each of you for sharing your critical perspectives. And before we close, I want to remind people that if you're in a position to make a donation, no matter how small, please consider giving to Haymarket Books. And please register for Haymarket's upcoming events, Wednesday, July 29th, Racism is a Public Health Crisis, Thursday, July 30th, The Tragedy of American Science with Cliff Connor and Sarah Lazar. Also, there remain two more webinars in this series um, on uh, Syria uh, this coming Wednesday, July 29th at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, Jailed Revolutionaries, Resistance to Assad's Carceral State, and the final webinar on Wednesday, August 5th at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, Where Next for the Syrian Struggle? You can go to syrianrevolt.org for more details on those final two webinars, syrianrevolt.org. I want to thank you again to Maggie for live captioning this event. Thanks to Haymarket Books and Pluto Press for co-sponsoring this live stream. Thanks to all of you who joined us today, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.